In this morning's passage in the book of Acts, we're going to look at two brief scenes, each of which highlights the inevitability of trade-offs in the ever-expanding kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because if one thing is certain as we serve our Lord Jesus, it is that things will change. People will come and go. Practices will wax and wane. And when they do, will your heart falter or will it be continually strengthened by the unchanging grace of Jesus Christ? Because even when we must make trade-offs in partners and practices to adapt to differing circumstances, the grace of Jesus Christ always remains the same. So in your outlines, you can see we're in Acts chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 36, and we're going to look at these two brief scenes under two headings, that there are trade-offs in partners and there are trade-offs in practices. And even among these trade-offs, we will trade anything but grace. Let me pray for us as we dig into God's word together. Our Father in heaven, please help us as we come now to your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts of assurance in your grace that never ends. And Lord, as many things must trade off and come and go, help us never to trade on the grace of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for taking care of us and for bringing us together this morning around your praise and your word. Make us more into your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we'll see in this morning's text is trade-offs in partners. This is the end of chapter 15, starting at verse 36. After some days... Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, this first brief scene shows us the inevitability of trade-offs in partners. Barnabas and Paul have been through quite a lot together. The leaders in Jerusalem might never have trusted Paul's conversion to Christ were it not for Barnabas's advocating for him. And nearly a decade after that, Barnabas recruited Paul to go with him to Antioch, the city uh, north of Israel. He recruited Paul there to help teach the multi-ethnic community of believers there. The two of them then toward the northeastern Mediterranean region together, preaching the gospel and planting churches in the region of Galatia. While they were there, they went toe-to-toe with a satanic magician. They were nearly worshipped as gods. They got rocks thrown at them to the point where Paul was even supposed dead. They stood fast in one heart, and they eventually 
work together to speak to Jews of God's work among non-Jews, convincing everyone that God was giving the same Holy Spirit and the same faith to people of all nations. They've been through a lot together. But it's not all been perfectly peachy for these two partners either. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, he, he tells the people there that, that when he and Barnabas were together in Antioch and some troublemakers came from Jerusalem saying that people had to be circumcised in order to become Christians, Paul says that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And like Peter, who was there at the time too, he had stopped sharing meals with Gentile believers. Now, they worked it out. In the process, Paul had to oppose Peter to his face, and Barnabas was caught up in that. But the three of these men, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, after that, they went to Jerusalem. We studied this last week. They went there to convince the church leaders that Gentiles do not have to first become Jews before they can become Christians. And there's a big council meeting there to make these decisions. And now we pick up in verse 36 of chapter 15, where Paul would like to go back around the seacoast. He wants to tour back around the Mediterranean. He wants to check on all the new churches they had planted. And Barnabas agrees that this is a great idea for them to do. And in verse 37, he wants to bring John Mark along with them again. Now, in chapter 13, the narrative told us that Mark had accompanied them on their first trip. But after their very first stop on the island of Cyprus, that triangular-shaped island in the the eastern Mediterranean, uh, that was the place where they were opposed by a pagan sorcerer. And Right after that stop, Acts 13.13 says that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we were never told why John Mark left them. All we know is that he did. And we now know here in this text, verse 38, we know what Paul thought of the whole affair. Verse 38 says that he believed his perception was that Mark had withdrawn from them. Some other translations will even say that Mark had abandoned them. And had not gone with them to the work. So in verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement. And that phrase, sharp disagreement, is actually quite understated in the ESV translation. The, the Greek word that, that the text uses there could be rendered something like explosion or eruption. What happened here between Paul and Barnabas was not a gentleman's debate, but an outburst of emotion. Their fight over this matter was so severe that in their minds, they could not go on serving Jesus Christ together anymore. And so they split up and went in different directions. Now, for generations, commentators have sought to figure out why they had this fight. And we've sought to figure out which one of them was more to blame. 
that's only natural. It's what we all do when we witness an explosion among the leadership of any church. We want to make sure we land firmly on the side of being right. Who's the right one here? What's the right side? And yet the text tells us nothing other than how Paul perceived it, that Mark had withdrawn or abandoned them. And so what fascinates me about this narrative is that the author assigns no blame between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Apart from the colorful term he uses for the explosion between them, he renders no judgment on the fight. He describes the situation in surprisingly sterile terms. And so I think the point is not that we need to know or figure out exactly who was right and who was wrong in this argument so that we can learn from their mistakes. The point is rather that such broken friendships are part of life in a fallen world. Even among ministry partners, among those who are committed to preaching the grace of the Lord Jesus, trade-offs in partners will happen whether we like it or not. A change in personnel even if for ugly reasons, does not have to terminate the mission. So what matters most is not that we land in being on the right side. What matters most is that we land firmly in the grace of the Lord Jesus. That is what the the brothers there commended these missionaries to. They commended them to the grace of the Lord. How does this apply for us? When such things happen in our congregation, how many of us want to take pains to ally ourselves with the right side? Okay, time to confess, friends. When you heard a few months ago that I was taking a sabbatical from serving as an elder for this year, For how many of you was your first thought something along the lines of, what's going wrong with our elder team? Or maybe, who is Peter fighting with? And if you thought about the potential for a fight among the elders, did that leave you feeling unstable or insecure? Did you start worrying about what else might be going wrong? Did you fear you might end up on the wrong side? Now, in the interests of full disclosure, I will now inform you publicly that, yes, there are fights on the elder team. There are always fights. There is almost nothing that we all agree on. (laughs) And we are committed to hearing each other's perspectives, addressing all concerns, and debating matters frankly until we come up with a plan that everyone can support. So yes, these things are true, but no, there was no particular eruption that led to my taking a sabbatical for this year. I was just pretty worn out from many hard things going on in many sectors of my life that I needed a bit of a break. But please make no mistake, leaders will come and leaders will go. Church members will come and church members will go. 
sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for neutral reasons, and sometimes, like in the case of Paul and Barnabas, they will go for ugly reasons. Such trade-offs are inevitable. This doesn't mean we want them to happen. It just means that we need to make sure we land with our feet firmly planted in the grace of the Lord. Look at verse 40. It is the grace of the Lord to which the church at Antioch is able to commend these missionaries. Though people come and people go, the Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we must keep our eyes fixed on him. Trusting him gives your soul a sure anchor. And even when you might not know the full story behind a conflict of personalities among the leadership, or you wonder whether you can fully trust what your eyes see in front of you, you ought to know at all times that you can trust the grace of God to be at work. The grace of God brings light from darkness, and it turns any amount of ugly into something beautiful and glorious for his own honor and praise. Just as Paul and Barnabas's split resulted in two missionary teams where once there had been only one, so also our challenges and our difficulties, our disagreements and eruptions are all being woven into the plan of God's grace for the ages. Where the risen Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted on high and proclaimed as King of heaven and earth. Now, if you are here this morning exploring Christianity and you have been hurt or abused or offended in the past by leaders claiming to follow Jesus, I am deeply sorry for what you have experienced. There is a lot to work out. There is a lot to work through. And I'm just really impressed that you're still here today considering these sacred writings with us. And I beg of you, please don't allow weak Christians to keep you from a powerful Christ. Christianity has never been about perfect little people getting everything just right. It has always been about weak and foolish and wretched people who need a perfect savior. This is God's unchanging grace. And if you've suffered in the past, I, I don't say this to minimize your pain, which ought to be explored and remedied as much as possible. I say this only to invite you to something better. Churches are made up of messed up people working together to become more like their king. Let me make one final point of application uh, on this point for, for all, which is that you cannot trust your leaders to always be right. And you cannot trust them to never change. You cannot trust them to make the right decisions every time. But though you can't trust your leaders for these things, you can trust the grace of the Lord toward them, which will never change. Our God is so big. He is so strong and so mighty. There's nothing 
that he cannot do. And so we will trade anything but grace. And the gates of hell will not prevail, even when trade-offs in personnel must take place. Now, not only in personnel or in partners, we move on to see that the narrator also wants to show us that there is a time for making trade-offs in practices. Moving into chapter 16, look at verses 1 through 5 with me. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This second scene of our text this week shows us trade-offs in practices, though yet again, never trading on God's grace. In verse 4, right here, Paul and Silas go about delivering the decisions reached by the council in Jerusalem. This was the council we studied last week, earlier in, in chapter 15. And they went delivering these decisions to the churches in the southern region of Galatia, where Paul and Barnabas had planted churches in chapter 14. And so they're delivering those decisions. And do you remember the primary decision that was made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem? That decision was that circumcision is not required for someone to become a Christian. Non-Jews do not have to first become Jews before they can become Christians. As Peter put it so eloquently during the council's deliberation, he said in verse 11 of chapter 15, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, Paul and Silas are in the process of delivering that very decision to these recent converts to Christ. When Paul was last in this town, he, he's in Lystra, when he was last there, he preached the truth about Jesus right before getting stoned by a mob stirred up by Jews in that region. And apparently this young man named Timothy had put his faith in Christ becoming a student, becoming a follower of Jesus. In verse 1, he's called a disciple. This disciple named Timothy was there. And Paul sees in Timothy a hunger. He sees a willingness to preach Christ and to suffer for him. I mean, he had to see, hear Paul's preaching and see Paul getting worshipped as a Greek god and then getting stoned. And, he, and But yet he's still willing to preach Christ and suffer for him the way Paul has done. And so in verse 3, Paul wants Timothy to accompany him. But look at what Paul does next. Verse 3, he took him and circumcised him. What? What? What about all that stuff, Paul, about being saved and receiving the Holy Spirit through faith? 
What about your trip to Jerusalem? What, what about the lengthy fights with the Christians from the party of the Pharisees? What about the council's decision that circumcision is beside the point when it comes to salvation? Many commentators over the generations have looked at Acts 16.3 and they've claimed that Paul was inconsistent or that he didn't really believe what he preached, or some have claimed that this shows why we can't trust the authors of Scripture, because the guy who wrote this narrative of Acts 16 clearly didn't know the Paul of history, who would never go for such a thing as circumcising a young protege. But such conclusions are unacceptable for those who believe what the Bible says about itself, for those who who trust the authority Jesus gave to his own followers to record these things for us. So what is going on here when Paul circumcises Timothy? I'd like to show you two things. I'd like to show you why Paul does this and what we must learn from it. Why Paul does this and what we must learn from it. First, why did Paul do it? Verse 3 actually tells us why Paul circumcised Timothy. It was because of the Jews in those places who knew that, excuse me, who knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. Now, Greek culture was deeply patriarchal. So even though Timothy's mom was a Jew, her husband would have exercised unilateral authority in the home. He was the one who prohibited her from circumcising her son on the eighth day as Moses had commanded. But even though Timothy's dad was Greek, his mom was still Jewish. He would, therefore, by the Jews, he would not be considered a full Gentile. They would think of him perhaps as some sort of a half-breed, like a Samaritan. He'd be considered the son of a woman who belonged to the chosen people, but who was unfaithful in marrying an outsider to begin with. If Timothy's parents were even married, we just don't know. And yet God was raising up this young man in courage and in faithfulness. The calling of God on his life was apparent to Paul and Silas, such that Paul wants to take Timothy along on his travels. But the calling of God was also apparent to the elders of the church there in Lystra. We know from Paul's letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, that those elders had laid their hands on him and commissioned him to preach the scriptures. So Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and his, his mom and his grandma had, had taught him these scriptures. He wants Timothy to follow in his footsteps and to continue spreading the gospel to both Jews and non-Jews, because we've learned this from Acts, that Paul's practice was always to go to the Jew first, and only then, if the Jews reject it, then he goes to the Greeks. So, in light of his ministry to the Jew first, he needs Timothy, if Timothy's going to be there, and Timothy's, if Timothy's going to be preaching along with Paul, Timothy needs to be able to get to at least first base with those Jews. If an uncircumcised half-Jewish man stood up in a synagogue to preach, he'd at best he'd get booed off stage. More likely, he would be brought to immediate physical harm. 
So what Paul does in circumcising Timothy is quite shrewd. He doesn't do it in order for Timothy to become a Christian. Remember, we're told in verse 1 that he was already a disciple. He was already following Jesus. He was already a Christian. That's not why Paul circumcises him. Paul circumcises him simply to make it easier for Timothy to preach the word of the grace of the Lord Jesus to more Jews in those regions. You see, it's a question of ministry philosophy. It's not a question of salvation. It's not about getting Timothy any closer to God. It's about enabling Timothy to help others get close to God. It's all about removing those obstacles that people may have in hearing the message about Christ. So that's why Paul did it. And that then helps us to answer the second issue of what we ought to learn from it. What we ought to learn from this is that anything, anything that is not a matter of salvation is something that can be traded off when it will set people up to hear the word of Christ. Any practice, any one of our practices, that is not a matter of salvation. I'm not talking about trading off our our beliefs of what the scripture says. No, we believe what the scriptures say. But as far as our practices, anything that's not a matter of salvation is something that can be traded off when it will set people up to hear the word of Christ. And this might even be the case when there's a topic that in one setting, we need to fight to the death on it because people are trying to make it a matter of salvation. And so we fight against it. What does this look like? What do I mean by this? If a church were to believe that wearing a shirt and tie was required in order to be a Christian or to be a preacher of the gospel, I would seriously consider showing up to preach in blue jeans just to prove that it's not a matter of salvation. If it was something that's tied to salvation, we fight it to the death. No, this no, this has nothing to do with salvation. However, if a church were to believe that preaching in blue jeans is culturally disrespectful and contemptuous, such that they won't even listen to a word I said while wearing jeans, then I would make absolutely sure to wear a suit and tie in order to gain a hearing for the good news that salvation is not tied to one's clothing. This is why whenever I'm invited to guest preach at another church, I always ask, what are the people used to? What does the pastor normally wear? I don't want to do anything unintentionally to set up unnecessary stumbling blocks. And I'm willing to adapt my practices to trade them off so that the message is more likely to be heard. If we care about the grace of the Lord Jesus, it is inevitable that we will make trade-offs in our practices. And these trade-offs are made in order to guarantee that grace will never be traded, but will have a hearing. It will gain a hearing. So how does this apply for us? Brothers and sisters, please understand why trade-offs must take place. Because then you won't have to freak out when such trade-offs do, in fact, take place. And instead, you can put your energy into making sure that the good news about Jesus 
gets the hearing it deserves and that we can remove obstacles for people to be able to hear the gospel. Such trade-offs at times may feel confusing. Sort of like Paul fighting so hard against circumcision in chapter 15 and then in chapter 16 going and having Timothy get circumcised anyway. It's confusing. It can look like we're just capitulating to the mobs. But we're not. We're removing obstacles. Similarly, when we start decided to start meeting in person as a church last July, we, we met outside on the front lawn. Remember that? With the umbrellas, a little tent for the preacher and the worship leader. And this perhaps looked a little weird to some observers. I know because folks mentioned this to me. It may have looked like fear. It, it, it looked to some like we weren't trusting that God is more powerful than a virus. Why are we capitulating? And it looked like we're capitulating to, uh, to the world around us as though the civil authorities have greater authority than God. But that wasn't true at all. In fact, what was really going on was that the elders deemed it an acceptable trade-off in order to gain a further hearing for the gospel. Because friends, especially during this pandemic, the world is watching the church right now. They are looking to see whether we believe what we preach or not. Do we believe what we preach? Do we believe that, really believe that we are not the center of the universe, but the Lord Jesus is? Do we believe that love for God and love for our neighbors are more important than our personal peace and affluence and the exercise of personal freedom. You see, the trouble with trade-offs is that they always cost something. Something has to change. Something beloved might be lost. A desirable circumstance is traded away for an undesirable one. Just consider for a moment how much it cost Timothy to get circumcised as a young adult man. I mean, seriously, how much did he have to give up to go along with Paul on that one? But it was worth it to him so more people could hear the gospel. And similarly, when we started meeting outside, when we stopped meeting for a season, and then we started meeting outside, and then we came inside without singing for a season, we saw the gospel going out and connecting with more people than we expected. Some folks simply popped in and out, travelers, folks who came to join with us at, at times when not very many churches were meeting at all. But others have become longer-term friends. Of the five new members we just added a few weeks ago, I believe three of them started attending our church while we were meeting outside. And the other two... Keith and Caroline, we're so glad you guys are here. They they started attending while we were inside, but not singing at all. But the gospel was going forth, and new friends are being made, and new members of the flock are being nourished and encouraged and drawn in. This pandemic has given us a marvelous opportunity to see whether we really believe what we say we believe. Now, I'm not saying that that means that every decision we have made was exactly the right decision. I'm only saying that whether each decision was exactly the right one or not is irrelevant 
What matters is not outside or inside, masks or no masks, singing or no singing. What matters is that we will trade any practice except the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will do this all in order to make it possible for more people to give us a hearing so they can hear the good news about Jesus and believe. Now, when Paul wrote a letter to these people in Lystra, that town where he met Timothy, and he wrote a letter to them and the other towns in that region, we call it Galatians. He put it this way in Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's all I'm saying here. Circumcision, uncircumcision, you know what? It doesn't matter. There are times for one, there are times for the other. We can trade it off. But what will never be traded off is faith working through love, trusting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask all of you this morning, from God's word and by the power of his Holy Spirit, to please stay engaged with us through this prolonged season of many trade-offs in our practices. If there is a practice you do not prefer or you disagree with, please know it will not last forever. It may even soon be traded away for something better. If something is not a matter of salvation, it can come and it can go. It can be added or taken away as the circumstances warrant, all to make it as easy as possible for more people to hear the good news of the kingdom. And so like Paul wrote to the people in Corinth, uh, we, to the Jews, we become like a Jew. To those under the law, we become like those under the law. To those not having the law, we become as those not under the law. All these things can be traded off, all so that by any means we might win some. If something has been very hard for you in this season, some particular practice, or it's been very personal to you. I am confident that the elders care and they want to understand. We love you. We are delighted to have you as a part of our church. And if you felt destabilized in this season, you are not alone. We have all felt that way. But please know this. Please be assured that we are willing to make an exceptional number of trade-offs for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we are willing to make an exceptional number of trade-offs, we will never trade on the grace of the Lord Jesus to strengthen our faith. There is one way to be saved. There is one way and only one way for men, women, and children to be made right with God. There is only one way to enter the kingdom of heaven and return to intimacy with the one who created you and chose you to be his. And that one way is by trusting in the grace of the Lord Jesus who died and rose to remove your sin and to give you his life, his righteousness, and his eternal kingdom. Even when we must make trade-offs in partners and practices to adapt to differing circumstances, the grace of Jesus Christ always remains the same. We will trade anything but this grace, even if it costs us our lives. 
Please be assured of that and please stay engaged with us as we continue navigating uncertain times. Let me pray while Dan comes up to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for your word that you are so honest and you are so frank and real, even telling us about this eruption between Paul and Barnabas and Paul's willingness to have Timothy circumcised so that the gospel would go forth because of the many Jews in that region. Lord, please help us to be strengthened by grace and not by any of these other practices we tend to hold on to, to give us stability. Strengthen us by your grace. Help us to stand fast in your love with our feet firmly planted in you, knowing that you love us because Jesus died for us. You are our hope, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.